Please turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Can you believe it? We've made it to chapter 11. Seems like just yesterday we started this, huh? Well, we've been in chapter 11 for a few Sundays now. <clears throat> and this morning I've simply just titled my message A Biblical Method for Serving. You know, one of the things that I know I've said, you know, as you, as you think about uh, through these letters and what Paul is dealing with, if there's ever a person who could simply say, all right, fine, I, I've had enough. I'm no longer going to be your whipping post. I'm out of here. It'd be Paul. But Paul does not, does not do that. He doesn't yield. He doesn't quit. And uh, as we've seen in this text, he's responding. You know, a few Sundays back, we looked at uh, his speech, right? They, they didn't like the way Paul talked, right? He's just not quite there, Right? You can imagine some of the Corinthians going, keep at it, Paul. Someday you'll get there, right? Someday you'll make it, you know. But he didn't speak the way they liked, right, these Greeks. Paul was a powerful preacher, but he just wasn't quite what they wanted. And his response to that is, I came not with speech, right? I mean, he said that back in the first letter. It came in knowledge, right? And even though we are in this culture and we're aware of the culture, we want to operate in the culture, uh, we don't want to imbibe the culture. Uh, we want to bring knowledge. We want to bring understanding. So Paul has been dealing with that. In the passage this morning we'll look at, he's dealing with this accusation that because Paul did not take money from the Corinthian church, right, for preaching the gospel, they have concluded that Paul thinks his message isn't worth much. And so he'll, he's going to address that. And Paul has a unique calling, right? He's an apostle. The church is being formed. I mean, the Lord has called him to these things, and he's dealing specifically with these situations. And yet, you know, as we read this, what do we glean? And what are we to learn about Paul's method? And so there's a few things that I just want to point out this morning about the way Paul is approaching this that might encourage us. Because I think each one of us has, you know, we have a method of going about things, right? We have a method in the morning. We have a rhythm in how we how we get up and, and how we get ready and how we make the coffee. In Jesus' name, that's a, that's a praise right there when you're making the coffee. But we have a method to everything. And it reminds me, right, sometimes in ministry we get so stuck on the method and we don't necessarily assess the method and there might be a better way of approaching things. There's a story of a missionary named uh, Herbert Jackson. And Dr. Jackson had... Uh, was working on the mission field, and someone had blessed him with uh, a car. He was in desperate need of a car, and someone blessed him with the car, but they said, uh, Dr. Jackson, there's a few things wrong with the car. To get it started, you either have to push start it uh, or jump it, right? That's, that's, sorry, that's the reality, what you got here. And so he was elated. We have a car. We'll figure that out. We'll push that thing, no problem. So he devised his method, his method was if, if he could park next to a school, he would do that. Because he'd always go grab some children, hey, come help push the car, right? Get it started. <laughs> if he had to, to park somewhere, he would look for a hill. If it wasn't near a school, right, let's back this thing up on a hill, right? Get it rolling without the help of some children pushing. Start the car. And then he also concluded that if, if he didn't have to stay long, right, he would just leave the car running. So this was his method, and this went on for two years. This is how he, he was doing ministry as a missionary and making his rounds and doing things that he needed to do for the mission. This is how his, his method was going. 
Well, at the end of those two years, Dr. Jackson was coming to a place where he had some poor health. And so he was being relieved. He needed to come back to the States. Another missionary family shows up. And so uh, Dr. Jackson is walking this missionary around and showing him all the things. And he gets to the car and he says, oh, this is great. You have a car, but there's a few things you got to know about it. Right? You're gonna, and he starts to go into his spiel. This is what you're going to have to do. You're going to want to park it on a hill. And he starts telling the missionary uh, his, his method. Well, as he was talking, the missionary pops the hood and realizes there's a loose cable on the battery. <laughs> Tightens the cable. Cuts off Dr. Jackson. I'm sorry, but it looks like all your problem here is just the cable is loose. Turns the key, starts the car, they drive away. I can imagine, right, him looking at this and going, for two years, <laughs> we didn't check the cable, right? Sometimes we get into methods, we get into our strategies, we get into things, and we don't take the time to assess them. Are they right? Is this the right approach? Again, Paul has reasons to just, you know, call it quits on this church, right? Corinthians, I'm done. But he doesn't yield, he doesn't quit, and he has a strategy in which he approaches them. And this is what he says, right? This is in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians. I read 7 through 11. He says, or, right? And he's, he's attaching it to verses 5 and 6 there of common knowledge. And he says, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? There's that accusation. Verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. You notice he stresses that twice, right? Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in all the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Let me offer a brief prayer. Father, as we look to your word now, I ask that your spirit would be here, uh, giving insight and, Lord, understanding uh, giving instruction, Lord, you would teach us that we would think rightly about what your word teaches and we would see it rightly implemented. Uh, grow us in the wisdom and understanding of how Paul is approaching this church, that we in our own service in the body and service to those outside of Christ, Lord, that we might be wise and apply what he is teaching. So Lord, lead us that way, I pray, and get me out of the way that we would, we would receive uh, what you have for us today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look back on chapter 11, it's been a few Sundays back, we talked about the first four verses, how Paul was devoted. Um, Paul was so devoted, he's devoted to the cause of Christ. If you remember ending chapter 10, he says we need to bring every thought captive, and then he goes into we want a ministry that the Lord commends. And he begins, not for him, chapter 11, for us, chapter 11, right? We, uh, he's just writing a letter. Excuse me, but he has this devoted passion for the cause of Christ, the singularity of Christ. Right? He challenges the Corinthians to grow, to mature in Christ, because we realize that there are others out there who preach a Jesus who's not the Jesus of the Bible. They will say he's Jesus of the Bible, but he's not the Jesus born in Bethlehem 
raised in Nazareth, right? And when we have different Jesuses, we have different uh, gospels, we have different spirits. And so he's saying, look, through these things, you must uh, be devoted to Christ. You must come to a place where you know the truth of the scripture. And we must come to, to simply say that if there are others who say they are Christian, yet they don't stack up with, with uh, the Bible, that we must kind of reject that as false. Just because uh, they, we slap the name church or we slap the name, I don't know if we slap the name or put the name, that sounds kind of abrupt, uh, but if we put the name Jesus or Christian on something, it doesn't mean that it's Jesus affiliated with Scripture or with uh, Scripture itself. It doesn't, it doesn't mean necessarily that. The enemy loves to confuse us uh, with that word, right, equivocation. We all use the same words. We're all defining them differently. And so Paul has been dealing with that. Uh, you know, I asked the rhetorical question, can there be false teachers in the church? Yes. Uh, Paul is dealing with that. Can there be those who come in the church who preach a, a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible? Yes, he's dealing with that, Right. So we want to be growing and maturing. And, and of course, in verses 5 and 6, we talked about the influence of the culture. We're in the culture, but we're not to imbibe the culture, right? To be wise and discerning. Uh, we want to speak knowledge. That's where Paul says, I didn't, I didn't come, right? I mean, he's a Jew. I'm not a Greek. To the Jews, I become a Jew. To the Greeks, I become as one as not under the law, right? He's stepping into a different sphere, and he's coming as a Jew, and yet he's saying, you know, he's not uh, that great speaker as the Greeks want, but he says, I have brought knowledge, right? More, more important um, than his speech. So as we see this, we see Paul's conviction. We, we get to see in these verses kind of him implementing this conviction. Uh, he's devoted, he's loyalty. What does that look like to a church that is... Uh, has these false teachers to a church that says, you know what, maybe we shouldn't believe Paul. I mean, clearly you've got a gamut of different, uh, uh, maybe a eclectic group of people together. You definitely have believers there. I'd imagine there's some who'd read these letters who would say, see, I told you, right? There's, there's that group as they read it. Uh, there's others who went, oh, that's what he meant, right? You get the whole gamut of people he's addressing. You have people inside, definitely he's writing to the church. He's addressing the church. All right, and yet there are those who are attending who are going, what is this whole Christian thing about? There's, it's all here. And so this is, this is Paul's method, right? Uh, he's being charged with this idea because he didn't take money from the Corinthians that his, his gospel isn't worth much. I don't know how they reasoned that one out, but that's what's going on. And so there's an implication, right, that these false teachers are charging the church. We're going to charge the church. You've got to pay us, right? We have this esoteric, hidden knowledge, this other gospel, whatever it might be. That's what was happening at the, the formation of the early church. Paul, aware of all these things. And he refers to the peddlers, if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 17, as peddlers. They peddle the word of God. They turn the gospel into a product. How can we make money off of this? And that's what he's calling them. That's what he thinks of them. And he says some pretty harsh things about these professing believers, doesn't he? To the Corinthians in verse 20 of this chapter, if you want to read it, he says, For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you. 
Anyone devours you. Anyone takes advantage of you. Anyone exalts himself. Anyone hits you in the face. Right? You can almost see Paul just shaking them. Why do you put up? Why do you put up with false teaching? Why are you doing this? Right? He told us that a few verses back in verse 11. You bear this, this false Jesus. You bear this false gospel. You bear this false spirit beautifully. Should tell us something about us, right? We can be led away by eloquent speakers and, and things that just look right and they've got the light show and other stuff. But Paul comes back with this knowledge. He's going to deal with this whole group. And the process of, of dealing with all of this, we see Paul's conviction, we see his loyalty, we see his devotion, but we see his method to service. This leads me to my first point. How is he addressing this group of people? Well, with humility, right? As I, I, I'm, I'm scratching my head. If, if ever there was a guy who's like, I'm going to come in there, and he, and he has that a tone, no doubt, to roll some heads when he gets there because he says he's going to deal with everything. But man, humility isn't something you would think, right? But this is his approach. I say we serve humbly to, to elevate others spiritually. He says in verse 7, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? As I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. Here's his rhetorical question, right? He's getting at it. I didn't charge you. He comes with the gospel of God. He's saying the same thing as the gospel of Christ. He puts an emphasis there though, right? It's not just the gospel. It is God's gospel. This is the knowledge I've come with you, or come to you with, rather, and he presents it to them, right? He has planted the church on this truth. So he comes and he asks these rhetorical questions. Is the gospel, right, Corinthians, is the gospel unworthy of its name because I preached it free of charge? No, right? Is there something wrong with the gospel that I preached? Clearly they would say no. Is it wrong that I didn't accept money? Uh, no. Right? You can see all these things. Is it wrong to lower myself, to humble myself, to elevate you? Is that ever wrong? No. Right? To ask the question is to answer it, right? And clearly Paul is... is driving this point rhetorical question he believes that they should already understand that right we've seen these elements where he comes and says you should know this i am serving right and humbling myself not out of weakness but out of strength i mean this is true to scripture our savior has said in matthew 23 12 whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted Humility is a virtue. Paul will say in chapter 12 of this letter, verses 9 through 11, uh, when he speaks of the Lord speaking to him, my grace is sufficient for you, uh, for power is perfected in weakness. Uh, most gladly, therefore, says Paul speaking, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, Excuse me. 
with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to these most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. It's Paul's view of himself, right? Writing in this context, having loyalty to Christ, devoted to Christ, Paul simply knows what's most important. To Paul, it's not Paul. To Paul, it's the gospel. I mean, how, what a contrast that we see today, right? We, we often, uh, unfortunately, see in the American church a desire for each pastor to build their own kingdom. Let's build my own kingdom. Let's make a name for myself. Let's write a book and have everyone endorse it to get me out there, right? That's not everyone, of course. But it seems that this element of saying, you know what's most important is the gospel. You hear a John the Baptist there, don't you? I must become less, that he might become more. So Paul lowers himself. Here's his, his method. Dealing with this group of people, with false teachers, these accusations, those who aren't sure, those who are on the fence, he comes with humility. And he simply explains to them, this, this is how I went about it. I came without any charge. I I came with humility that you might be elevated, that you might become children of God. That's the elevation. They might be exalted to the family of God. Paul simply knows, and this should be our conviction as well, that nothing should hinder, nothing should come in the way of the proclamation of Christ's gospel. We should never be those who try to package it or, or present it or turn it into some type of thing we can make money on. He says in his first letter, chapter 9, verse 12, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. I mean, Paul knows his audience here, doesn't he? He, he realizes that if he was to come and, and take some type of monetary gift from them, the accusations would be unending. Oh, you're only here for the money. And he had to deal with that in the collection for the churches in Jerusalem. He was adamant, it's not for me. He understands them, and yet he comes with humility and says, everything I've done is that you would become part of God's family. Humility. There was a story of D.L. Moody one time back in the 1800s when people would come to his Bible conference and they would stay at um, the dorm rooms on school because he had a school there. And one particular year, he had many pastors from Europe come. And they were staying in the dorm rooms and, and it is said that D.L. Moody was walking the halls and praying over these pastors, right? Just praying at the night. Everyone's in their rooms. He's walking the halls and praying that God would do a work in these pastors, that they would go back and do great things for the Lord. And he realized as he was walking the halls that many of these uh, European pastors had put their shoes outside. And it dawned on him, uncommon to America, but over in Europe, that they put their shoes out. Someone would collect the shoes, shine the shoes, and return them. So he attempted to get some students to help him. None were doing it. They're shutting down for the night as well. And it's said that D.L. Moody collected those shoes and was shining them. And he never told anyone. Now you're sitting there like, well, how do we know the story? There is one friend 
who came to check on him in the night and found him shining shoes. He didn't want this to be a hindrance to these pastors. They would receive what Christ, his gospel, meant. It's not about D.L. Moody. That's the heart, right, isn't it? It's part of our method. I'm, I'm humble to serve, right, to build up the church, to see the church edified and strengthened. Why? It's not about me. It's about Christ. That's what Paul's addressing, what drives, what's driving him through this. We humble ourselves, we offer right humility to elevate others spiritually. Verses 9, or excuse me, 8 and 9, uh, we see the, the strategy of Paul, right? He is strategic in keeping the gospel the focus. He says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. Now, no doubt that's a little bit of a jab at them, because I mean, does Paul rob churches? No, right? And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you. And I will continue to do so, right? Paul understands how these Corinthians reason, right? He's touched on this. We've said it many times. He's not going to take some type of monetary thing from them. Because who knows the accusations. Remember back on the first letter where he was thankful that he didn't baptize many of them, right? Because we had all these segregations. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I'm better than you all. I follow Jesus, right? There's that group. There's always that group, right? We're better. We actually follow the real deal. And Paul knows that about them. So he's very strategic. So he comes and he, he kind of hits them with some hyperbole, right? He just comes and says, I robbed other churches to do this for you. I mean, here he comes back to the military language. We mentioned that uh, at the beginning of, of chapter 10. Here he's, he's using it again. And the, the word robbed has this element of, of, of taking by force, right? But it really has the picture of conquering somebody on the battlefield and then taking, right, from fallen soldiers. I mean, that's the word, right? So, so clearly there is a, a big slap up between the face here a little bit, right? Metaphorical. And the word wages simply signifies, right, a soldier's pay. Now we may say, well, come on, pastor, that's a, that's a bit far of a stretch, right? But uh, listen to what these soldiers were asking of John the Baptist. Luke three fourteen. some soldiers were questioning John the Baptist and saying, what uh, and what about us? What shall we do? And John says to them, do not take money from anyone by force or cause anyone falsely, or excuse me, accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages, right? What does is, what is John go after? Don't abuse your soldier's power. Right? Clearly, Paul coming with these words is to stress this. I came this. Like, this is how you're writing about me. So he's strategic here. And I think there is a profound contrast of the hearts of those in Macedonia to those in Corinth. I mean, Paul understands this. Those in Macedonia, remember back in chapter 8 where Paul writes about them. They're in extreme poverty, but they love to give. Man, they've caught, they've caught hold of the vision. Paul's our guy. He's got the, the gospel. We're going we're gonna to support him. Paul doesn't even ask the Corinthians to match that. He just says, out of your own 
right? Equality, come and share. And so we have this contrast, right? You have the poverty of Macedonia who are continuing to support Paul and Paul is getting support from them over against the prosperity of Corinth. Macedonia counts it a privilege and Corinth needs some prodding. Seems like money, right, can be an issue. Again, we see Paul strategizing, right? How do we, how do we go after this group? Paul is one of those persons who understands, right? You don't have to be a who's who to know what's what. He gets it. So he's utilizing this poverty-stricken church who love, who are on board. And if you remember, Paul desired this of the Corinthians. Come and support me. Let me be an extension of you. They're not quite there. But we do see in Scripture, right, for the 18 months in which he planted Corinth, we see Silas and Timothy brought to him monetary gifts from Macedonia. We see this in Acts 18 and Philippians 4. This is what's going on. He's saying it here. Even though they had wealthy members, right, this is not a tactic. Paul sees that I must approach this a little bit differently. I'm not going to be a burden. Isn't that interesting? He'll, he'll allow a churches going through difficulties because they understand the purpose, because they understand the gospel, because we're not giving this simply to give. We realize that the power, the knowledge that Paul is bringing changes lives. Well, I'm on board. And for those who are not on board, even though they have money and wealth, he will not take something from them. Paul's needs were met. The church struggling. His strategy was not to ask this of them because this would cripple, cripple the advancement, the strength of this church, the advancement of the gospel. We have to assess situations that we're in, right? As we minister to people, as we come across situations, is this the best tactic, right? Should we drive around in a car that we have to jumpstart all the time or should we figure out a better way, a better method? It's like the story of cowboy wisdom. There's this quote of cowboy wisdom that says, if you ever discover yourself riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount, Ever find yourself riding a dead horse? You're not going anywhere, just dismounts, right? But it goes on like this. However, in the church, we often try other strategies with dead horses, including the following changing riders. That might help. Dead horse, change the rider. Buying a stronger whip. Trying a new bit, a bridle, moving the horse to a new location, riding the horse for longer periods of time, <laughs> saying things like, but this is the way we've always ridden this horse. <laughs> Maybe appointing a committee to study the horse, arranging, uh, arranging to visit other sites to see how they ride dead horses. <laughs> Increasing the standards for riding a dead horse. Creating a test for measuring our riding ability. 
comparing the state of dead horses today, complaining about the state of dead horses today, coming up with new styles for riding dead horses, blaming the horse's parents, <laughs> tightening the cinch, declaring that the horse is not dead, and ask uh, others to believe it too, harnessing several dead horses together for increased speed, trying to resuscitate the dead horse, praying for the dead horse to be resurrected. See, Paul is approaching this, and he knows something, right? He knows you can't ride a dead horse. He knows that if he comes to this, this group and asks for these kinds of things, this charge, this, this accusation against him, the gospel will be lost in that mess. Paul sees that it's better to stand with others who have the same conviction. Paul, we're with you. We don't have much. Or we're poverty-stricken, but we're with you. Paul is willing to say, let's, uh, let's stand. I will stand with those. I will allow them to help me, but I will not ask, and I will continue not to ask from those who simply don't understand the purpose, the extent, the power, and the might of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So part of our strategy is to simply come to realize that as we encourage in the body of faith, as we minister to one another, that as we looked outside the church, we must be wise in how we approach. There'll be times where people will listen, and there'll be times they will not. And I think as we see through this passage that we may be tempted to simply go, well, the strategy didn't work. And uh, we gave it a good college try. The horse is still dead. The car still needs to be jumped. Let's just call it a day, right? But that's not what we see in Paul. Paul understands, right? If his strategy is to come and say, look, I'm not going to take funds for you. I'm going to continue to, to grab, uh, utilize funds from those who, who are on board, who understand the gospel, understand what this is about, that there's no, there's no uh, uh, defense that is necessary for them. I don't have to defend why I do what I do. They're on board because this is about uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and so I'm going to be strategic in that, but yet he's going to be, and this leads to my next point, he's going to be persistent. He's not going to yield, right? The strategy may change, but out, coming out of that statement, coming out of this reality, saying that I have robbed these other churches, right, using military language, painted this picture, and says, I stand with these Macedonians, and then he comes to verse 10, and he makes this statement, as the truth of Christ is in me. This boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Paul is simply going to be unyielding. God has called him. The strategy is... is Working, then pursue it. Be persistent. If the strategy must change, change the strategy. Fix it, right? And get pursuing. Become persistent. See, Paul is confident that what is needed is Christ. I think this verse needs to be realized in, in every one of us who profess Christ. 
we too should have just an, a confidence that what is needed in our world today is Christ, his word. Are you going to be told, um, you know, be quiet or shut up or we call the babbler as Paul was called or what is this babbling idiot talking about? Are you going to hear those things? Yeah. I mean, Paul is, is dealing with this right now. He doesn't talk right. But he's not going to stop, is he? See, I believe Paul writes, and just as every believer who has come to Calvary has seen what Christ has done for them, there should be something in us that says, I'm not going to stop either. When we see our Savior praying, not my will, your will be done, seeing the, the brokenness on his face, but the willingness to be obedient. And it's not to guilt us, but it's to bring us back to the realization that he has done this for us. And we sing these songs all the way, the Savior leads me. We sing he's the ancient of days, he's constant, he's unending. We realize that he's with us in our, our darkest moments and our mountaintop experiences. And often we find in life that our conviction is, is what is lacking. Don't worry, I'm stepping on everyone's toes, right? And mine included. But this was Paul's confidence that as a simple vessel for Christ to proclaim the gospel, he believed that whoever comes to believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will not be disappointed. He says in Romans 10, 9 through 11, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes will not be disappointed. The personal question to each of us this morning is, what has stopped our proclamation? Has our strategy not been working and we're frustrated? Is it time to, to stop riding a dead horse? It's time to dismount the dead horse. Let's approach it differently. See, this statement, the truth of Christ, I will not stop proclaiming the truth of Christ. Jesus, the originator of truth is in Christ. This truth is the objective truth. This is ultimate reality. This truth decimates, right, anything that is false. This truth is what the enemy wants you to stop talking about. This is why he attacks Christ and makes us question. This is why he wants us to get away from the commands of Scripture and just do what feels good to you. Come on, just like Eve, you reason unto yourself. Paul will have none of it. This is, this is Christ's messenger. This is 
the reality. We too are messengers. This too should be our conviction. Will you be rejected? Of course. That's going to happen. The Lord told us. The world will hate you because of me. But there will be those, just like Paul experienced, who says we must, we must hear of this again. See, because here's the reality. In your sphere of influence, right? Think for a moment. Your sphere of influence, where you go, what you say, or what, you're, what you do in your activities, uh, there might be people in your sphere of influence whose only hope of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ is you. We're not in the days where everyone seemed to have a Christian conviction and everyone seemed to understand who Jesus is. I believe there are people in your sphere of influence who have no idea who Christ is, why he came, right, or, or, or anything that has to do with Christianity. And that's a sobering thought. I mean, Paul is writing to a bunch of people who are on the verge of maybe walking away from this whole thing called Christianity. These false teachers have infiltrated, right? There's a different Jesus, different gospel, different spirit, and Paul is not yielding. Paul knows, and I've said this, I think the last few Sundays, he knows we're not going to win every battle, but he also knows we lose every battle we don't fight. So he believes in kingdom growth. He believes that this is what this church needs. He believes, right? He's persistent. My strategy is not to take money from them, to minister to them, to keep at this, and to continually not take money from them. This is how I'm approaching all this eclectic group in Corinth, but I'm going to be persistent, and you, Corinthians, and anybody else isn't going to stop me from shouting at the top of my voice the truth of the gospel of Christ, the truth of Christ. It is needed today, isn't it? It's right, the spirit, this attitude, this conviction, man, we need this today. I fear in the church at large that, it's, that we don't have many who swim against the stream. We don't have many who swim against the current. We do have ever uh, the dead fish who float along with the current. We have loads of that. But we don't have those who will make a stand and say, this is the God. I'm not uh, moving from this moment, or I'm not moving from this conviction. I'm not moving from this proclamation because it's not about Paul. This is his drive. It is Christ, him crucified. This is what he's about. This is why he is persistent. This is why he drives, because he knows that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can change the false teachers, can convict everyone who's on the fence of that church, and can edify those who have believed on Jesus Christ. That's where he's coming from. That's what we need. We need to be persistent. Too often we get our or maybe we get offended, or we get called a bad name, or we get called your whatever, right? You can fill in the blank there. But it stops us. And instead of going back and going, okay, well, that strategy didn't work. Let's adjust that thing and, and get back on our persistency. Instead, we go, well, you know what? Let's just pull the cable off the car. Now we can't even push start it. And what's the drive? It's my last point. And we serve lovingly, right? Here's the, the, here's the marker of every Christian. We love. We serve lovingly because we're redeemed. Here's this, right? Some more rhetorical questions. Why? <laughs> Why will I not stop persisting in Christ? Because I don't love you? Is that why? He says, no, God knows I do. 
then he knows, right? I mean, here is the, I don't know if, you, if this is in the Greek, but uh, you kind of sense it there. Sticks and stones may break my bones, right? But your words will never harm me. It almost sounds like Paul here, doesn't it? You can say whatever you want. Say whatever you want. Call me any name in the book. Create some new ones, right? Go for it. But I'm not stopping and I'm not going to stop proclaiming Christ. Why? Because I don't love you? No, because I do love you. There's the real, the real rub, isn't it? What are we saying to those who maybe have rejected us and we give in and give up? We have to say, just like Paul, well, we're going to stop loving them. Yep, that's everyone's toes again, isn't it? So Paul comes right at these, these infiltrators slandering his name is because I don't love you. Come on, brothers, sisters, Corinthians, is because I don't love you. Is this why I'm doing this? Is this why I've, I've approached it this way? Is this why I, I've come and I've humbled myself before you and I've, I've elevated you spiritually? Is this what this is all about? No, I've come because I do love you and I want you to know Christ. And Paul says, God is my witness. Try to argue against that one, Right? God is my witness. God knows I love you. And this takes us right back to what has he told the Corinthians? First letter, chapter 13. Love is patient, beginning in verse 4. Love is kind, it is not jealous. Love does not brag, it's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures. That's what Paul's doing right here, all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But, right, until that time, but. Now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these, love. It's what changed Paul, right, the Damascus Road experience. Part of his testimony is that moment where he said, I gave approval to those killing, I obtained letters to, to extinguish those who are part of these followers of Jesus. He says in this letter, I'm a nobody, I'm nothing. But I will not stop boasting about Christ. I think for us, we need to come back and realize we too have been redeemed. We too, like Paul, have had in our hearts, right, all the, the, the guilt necessary, right? We've had born into it. Everything that should, uh, we should be sent to hell, and yet we have experienced redemption. So Paul's method, 
humility. Elevate these brothers and sisters. He's strategic. I'm not going to borrow from you because I want the gospel to be the focus, not me. Persistent. I know what the gospel can do. It will change you. I'm going to keep at it. And I am going to do this lovingly. I've been redeemed. I think for us, right, we need to be mindful if we're riding a horse that's dead or we have a, a car that won't start, that we need to adjust it and keep at it. We too should have this conviction, right? It's our method. As we serve in the body of Christ, as we encourage our brothers and sisters, as we make it about the gospel, and we take these ideas and we minister to those outside of the church, that they might too come to know and believe on Christ. So here in a moment, we're going to close by singing Good Shepherd of My Soul. This is a, a Getty song, and it just simply talks about from the moments when uh, we are saved, right? And throughout life and through eternity, we come, right, all the way through. In this life we live, our shepherd will guide us. He doesn't give in. He doesn't give up. But before we sing, let's just bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we do thank you for today and your goodness to us. Thank you for loving us, Lord, and not quitting on us. And I pray for each of us this morning that we would hear these words, and what Paul is doing, his method, his approach, and we would not reason that it doesn't belong to us or we're not a part of that. I pray that we would not reason that because we've struggled in the past that it's not worth it. I pray that we would simply come back with this conviction that we are going to, in, in humility, serve. Uh, we're going to be strategic in how we go about things. We're going to think it through in the best way to, to reach different people or to support one another. And when we receive rejection, Lord, we're not going to, to quit. We're just going to adjust our strategy and re-engage. And Lord, let us, let us realize that it's because you have, you have loved us, that we love you that we can love one another. And so let the truth of the gospel rest in us and let it just propel us to be a light, to be the hands and feet of Christ, Lord, to be a voice of truth in a world that desperately needs it. And I pray that through us, through our weaknesses, Lord, our insecurities, our fears, Lord, demonstrate your power that we can say like Paul, Lord, we boast of our weaknesses because you demonstrate your power that we would know it is you, it is your truth. And so I pray, Lord, that the enemy would not take, Lord, seeds of your word or this message, but that they would grow in us. And Lord, you can do great and awesome things through the gifts and the souls represented here. So Lord, we ask, we submit ourselves to that and say, do, Lord, do great things. And um, we praise you and we pray this all in the wonderful and awesome name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.